do when you come across people who cause divisions, whose goal in life it seems to be to break relationships, relationships between family members, between friends, between neighbors? How do you respond when they teach contrary to what you have learned and what you believe, especially when they're causing those who they have influence over to question or to doubt or even to follow them in the same error? I mean, do you just let it go? Do you just let them do as they please? Or do you hold them to some standard? And if so, is there a standard? And if you do hold them to a standard, what do you do if they reject it? These are the questions that the book of Jude seeks to answer in verses 17 through 23. As we have seen through the first 16 verses, I had Keith read this so we can recognize that false teachers have crept into the church teaching what is untrue, what is contrary to the once-for-all faith that was delivered to the saints. They were perverting the grace of God by teaching that it doesn't matter how you live. They were saying, as long as you believe that Jesus saved you, you can live as you please. It doesn't matter if you live in ungodly ways. It's alright for you to indulge in sexual immorality or to, to pursue unnatural desire. It's fine for you to love the things of this world, to live just as those who have never heard Christ, because God has forgiven you. You have license to sin as you please, because God's grace will cover your sin. That's the message that these false teachers have presented. Now, we don't actually have to look too carefully to recognize that the message that Jude was proclaiming is every bit as relevant today. His words actually echo through the corridor of time, and they resonate in our day. You see, we live in a culture that rejects the notion of truth, where empires and advantages are gained through deception, and where it's more natural to doubt, to be a skeptic, than to trust, than to believe, than to have faith. We live in a society that relegates morality to personal preference. Well, you know, you may believe that's true, or that's right, or that's wrong, but I, I really don't. We live in a day that rejects and rebels against standards because we find them unpleasant. We find them unlikable. We find them unloving. We live in a civilization where people consider themselves wise in their own eyes. They consider themselves to be spiritual authorities. But they do not fear the Lord, nor do they turn away from evil. The false teachers that we encounter today, they don't stand up dressed in suits behind a lectern and eloquently try to persuade us to follow them without thought or without question. I mean, we are far too skeptical for that. No, our false teachers are much more subtle. They're much more patient. They're much more elusive. And they're far more deceptive. They actually whisper messages in our ears to mislead us. 
They, they mislead our minds. They affect our attitudes. They delude our desires. They steal our hearts until we find that we are conformed to this world. They proclaim messages through that box that's in the middle of our living rooms. They plaster themselves on billboards. They sing sweet nothings in our ears through our headphones. They, they jump out of the text we read in newspapers or on the internet or blogs or Facebook. They come in the form of people we love who hold our hands. They look us deeply in the eye. And they ask us to settle. Ask us to give in. Ask us to conform. Out of pleasure. Out of love. To do it for them. Every day we are bombarded with images and expressions of how we ought to live. And it's the slow and steady compromises that result in a practical denial of our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. In Jude 1-16, through He has already told us to rest and receive the blessings that we have in Christ and belonging to Him. But that requires that we assume the responsibility for contending for the faith. He has charged us to keep in mind the judgment awaiting the ungodly. And He instructs us to warn them of their impending doom. And now in verses 17 through 23, he continues his charge in three commands. To remember God's admonition, to keep yourselves in the love of God, and to show mercy to those in error. Because the truth and love of God overflows in mercy. Let's look again at verses 17 through 19. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. In verses 5 through 16, Jude took us on this biblical tour of God's judgment upon the false teachers. He started with the earliest example of Cain and Abel, and he brought us right up to the point that was immediately preceding Christ. And he, he uses these, uh, these examples to be a warning to his readers that these, uh, the, that these actually serve as predictions of the judgment that are waiting the ungodly in their day. He's, he's taking these pastime events and he applies them directly to his opponents. They will suffer the punishment of all those ungodly teachers who have gone before them. But to make sure that they don't think to themselves, well, that was then and this is now. That was, that was before Christ, and now we have Christ. And these false teachers, hey, they profess Jesus. That, that has to mean something, doesn't it? Judy reminds them of God's admonishment given through the apostles. That there will be scoffers. There will be those, even in our day, who follow their own ungodly passions. And we see this throughout the New Testament. When Jesus, in Matthew, 5, uh, Matthew 7, 15, says, you know, Beware of false teachers who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You know, Paul picks up this illustration in Acts 20, when he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. In fact, 
most of the letters that we even have for Paul in the New Testament, he's dealing with false teachers. He's dealing with those who are coming in, who are creeping into the church and are causing divisions, who are leading many astray. Peter and John. Again, they spoke of the false prophets who came from among them, but were not of them. And Jude's point is that the last days are here. The last days are here. The apostles were not talking about some distant future, but a present reality. The last days for us is that time from Jesus' resurrection and ascension until his second coming. Jude lived in that time period. You and I, we live in that time period. There were, there are, and there will be false teachers among us. Therefore, he says, remember it. Remember that. Take it to heart. Imprint it on your life. And beware. Jude then goes on to give a description of these false teachers. He says first that they're scoffers. They are those who mock God's word. God's established authority. They're spiritually prideful. They rebel against the teachings of Scripture. Now they may do it in words, they may do it in acts of defiance, but more frequently than not, they do it in attitudes and ungodly actions. When we refuse to obey the commands of Christ, to, to disobey our Lord and Master, your Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, we are mocking Him. We profane His name. We, we blaspheme against Him. We bring reproach upon Christ. You know, we, we can't call ourselves Christians that we belong to Christ and then act as though we do not. When we profess to believe in God, but act as if He is no of no consequence, we scoff Him. That's actually what it means to be ungodly, by the way, is to act as if there's no God. It's godlessness. As if we could be Christless Christians. It's not as though these men and women actually stood up and proclaimed that, that they outwardly rejected Jesus Christ. It was more subtle for them, and it's more subtle for us. Here's some examples of this I thought of where the pastor who stands up in the pulpit says, God wants you to be happy. God wants your best life now. It's in the boyfriend who, though claims to be a Christian, persistently persuades his girlfriend to sleep with him. He says, God is love, and God has given this as an expression of love. I love you, don't, don't you love me? It's even more subtle than that. It comes in parents who time after time set an ungodly example for their kids so that their kids follow in their ways. It comes from the man who uses his position of authority as a means of gain so that the world comes to think that's the way we use our authority. It comes in those who try to get others to follow them in, in the defiance of authority. In fact, it's, it's anyone who sinfully influences others in word or deed, in action or in attitude. If you sinfully influence others to practice in the same habits, you are a false teacher. 
Jude says that, that they follow their ungodly passions. They are practitioners of godliness. They continue in habits of sin. He says they're divisive, that they cause strife and factions and divisions among others. He says that they're worldly or natural, that their desires are for the things of the world. They want to look like, they want to live like, they want to be like the world and all the things that come with it. And they are willing to give their lives all that they can afford to be like the world. But let's be clear here. I do not want you to miss this point. If you have tuned out already, tune back in for this one point. I want you to catch it very carefully. He says that those people are devoid of the Holy Spirit. They do not have the Holy Spirit. They're not Christians. They're not true Christians. They may have prayed a prayer. They may have walked up an aisle. They may have received baptism. They may, in fact, come to every event that is on the church calendar. But they might be lost, utterly lost, because they do not have the Holy Spirit. You know, I asked this question in, in our Life Transformation group on Tuesday. I said, why is He called the Holy Spirit? Did you ever think about that? Why He's called the Holy Spirit? It seems kind of obvious, right? He's called the Holy Spirit because He's holy. That He's blameless. He's pure. He's completely righteous. He's without sin. He's sanctified. But, He's also holy because that is His job. That's His purpose. His goal. His mission. He Creates, he produces holiness. When we come to Christ, we are told from passages such as 2 Timothy 1.14 that the Holy Spirit dwells within all believers. So then, what's the effect of the Holy Spirit to come in, what's the effect of the Holy Spirit coming to dwell in the life of a believer? Uh, an unholy person. Is the Holy Spirit made unholy? No. No, he's not made it holy. The believer is made holy. Amen. This is not just a direct a, a declaration, but the believer is actually sanctified. That they have the ability to walk in holiness, to grow in obedience. The Holy Spirit doesn't leave us in our sin, but transforms us from our sin. He is the Spirit of holiness. He produces holiness. Those who follow in ungodly passions, who walk according to the flesh, are not according to the Spirit. They do not have the Spirit. They're not Christians. So Jude calls them to take this to heart, to remember God's admonitions, to remember God's truth, the truth. But second, he exhorts us to keep ourselves in the love of God. Let's look again at verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. In the first two words of verse 20, Jude contrasts believers with the ungodly. But you. He said, but you. Don't scoff. Instead, rejoice. Worship. Submit to Christ. But you. Follow godly passions. 
But you, be spiritual, not worldly. But you, be filled with the Holy Spirit. But you, but you be opposite of all these false teachers are. And how do we do that? We do that by keeping ourselves in the love of God. Jude calls us to action here. He calls us to, the, to labor, to keep ourselves in the love of God. But let's not think for a moment that we're alone in this. That we are actually kept by God. In verse 1, remember, Jude tells us that we are beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. We do not keep ourselves, but we are kept by His grace so that we might belong to Christ. In verse 24, he tells us that God, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, again, God is the one who keeps us in His love. Those who trust in Christ remain in the faith because of the preserving work of God. I mean, Jesus said this in, in John 10, verses 27 through 29, where he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one, no one, not even you, can snatch you out of his hand. Those who are in Christ will not and cannot be snatched from the Father's hand. This is, this is a tremendous blessing. How merciful, how loving that God keeps us, that He holds us in His hand. But that doesn't mean that we are without responsibility. That doesn't mean that we are not called upon to act, to, pers- to persevere in the faith. And that's actually what these ungodly people were missing. They believed that they were kept by God. They believed that they were held in His hand. They believed that, that God's grace was given to them, but they thought that was it. Done deal. I've arrived. I'm good to go. And now it doesn't matter how I act or how I live or what I do. They were missing the fact that God gives grace so that we might act to respond, that we might keep ourselves in the faith. God gives us grace to persevere. Yes, absolutely. But He gives it through means. And that those means were given that we might stay in the faith. Rather than assuming on God's grace then, we need to build up a defense if we are going to keep ourselves in God's love, if we are going to keep ourselves guarded from false teachers. You've probably heard of, of the phrase, um, or you've heard it said, the best defense is a good offense, right? Well, that's a lot like what Jude is saying here. If you want to defend yourself against false teachers, you need to keep yourself in God's love. And by doing that, you need to go on the offensive. That's the best way to do it. Now, if you paid any attention to NCAA men's basketball last year, you would have recognized, unless, of course, that you are are silly, or you are senile, or stuck up, or maybe absolutely blind, that one of the best defenses in all of the NCAA men's basketball last year was that of my team, the Missouri Tigers. You know, I, I'm happy to defend them. I, you know, I'll root for the Fighting Illini over two games a year, and you can bet on those two games I'm showing up in black and gold. But, the Missouri Tigers were a great 
defense. I mean, think about how far they got. They were 31 and seven. They uh, they won the Big 12 championship, right, Jim? Yeah. The tournament. Yeah. Yeah, they won the tournament. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but who did they beat? That's, you know. And they made it all the way to the lead eight, the same as. Well, you're talking about basketball, right? Yes. You're referring to the, the Big Twelve football championship. No, I'm, okay, I'm talking right. about basketball. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. He's in denial. See, he's one of those blind. <laughs> Yeah, we're getting away from my illustration. Here, oh, okay, stop. you know, you're right. But the reality is, the Missouri Tigers offensively were not that great a team. They were not big. They were not outside shooters. They didn't have the the Shaq or you know any of the big guys to to feed the ball down low. I mean, as far as offense goes, they were an average team. But what made them great was their defense, and because their defense took the offensive. They went man-on-man, full-court press for the entire game. They outran, they out-hustled, they out-labored, they forced the, the, the teams into turnover. They could not get to the ball to the other side of the court. And when they capitalized off these forced turnovers, they won every time. Sometimes even scoring over half their points off of forced turnovers. They were a team that had a good defense because their defense was offensive. And that's what Jude is saying here. If we want to defend ourselves against false teachers who creep in, the best way to do it is to go on the offensive. And he gives us three ways that we can do that. Three ways that we can keep ourselves in the love of God. He says, first, we build ourselves up in the most holy faith. He says, you know, that we build on this foundation of our faith. And this is not just a personal confession. This is, like verse 3, the body of teachings, the doctrine of the church of Christ. This is the gospel that you have received when you came to faith. Jesus says that if you want to stand against the temptations towards ungodliness, then devote yourself to doctrine, to grow in grace. Do you want to keep yourself in the love of God? Then just seek Him more and more. Grow in your understanding and your application of the gospel. It is pure, it is blameless, it is holy. And when you apply it, it results in purity, blamelessness, and holiness. Second, if you want to keep yourself in in God's love, you must pray in the Spirit. Now this is not a charismatic praying in tongues here, but it's praying in accordance with the Holy Spirit. Prayer that is inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit. We can't expect to keep ourselves in a love relationship with God if we don't communicate with Him. And such a relationship is nurtured through prayer. Matthew Henry once said, those who live without prayer live without God in this world. Those who live without prayer live without God in this world. A prayerless Christian is a Christian who is vulnerable to the teaching of these false prophets. But if we are living a life of prayer, if we are living in dependence upon God and His grace and mercy, then and only then are we ready to battle with false teaching. Third, Jude tells us, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life is a means to keep us in God's love. Here, Jude is speaking of hoping in Christ's return. For believers, we ought to long for the second coming. 
We ought to say, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, as well with my soul. Unbelievers can't say that. Well, I could say it, but they can't really mean it. They hope in everything in this world but the return of Christ. So let me ask you this. How's your hope? Are you expectantly waiting for Christ? Are you really longing for Christ's return? You know, if we take our eyes off of this future hope, we will find our, our love for God slowly evaporating. And I think we'll find that we're really loving the world. Therefore, cultivate hope in Christ. When we do all these three things, when we, uh, when we try to keep ourselves in the love of God through building upon the most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, by, by hoping in Christ, we will keep ourselves in God's love. Ligon Duncan put it this way. Uh, he said, not only cultivate love to God in our souls, but also live in the sphere of God's love for us. Dwell on it. Delight in it. Draw on it. To be cheered by it. When you are awash in the sense of God's grace and love for you, you are not vulnerable to the false teachings of, of a fake pitch. The Christian who knows the love of God experientially, the, the Christian who appreciates the love of God, manifests in the expensive gift, the costly gift of Christ, God's only Son, so that he might enjoy life with him forever. What then does a false teacher have to offer a Christian who is awash in the sense of the greatness of the love of God? What exactly are you going to give me to improve upon my love? I, I have the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am a son and daughter of the Most High. I have been brought into His family. I have been given a commission. I have been assured of eternal life. What exactly is it that you can give to me to improve my circumstances? No, the Christian who knows the love of God experientially is not vulnerable to the false teacher's fake pitch. Therefore, let us keep ourselves in the love of God through the study of His Word, through praying in the Holy Spirit, and by hoping in Christ. And finally, when we know the truth, and we have truly experienced the love and mercy of God, then we find ourselves able to wisely, wisely show mercy to those who are in error. 3 verses 22 to 23. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. These two verses clearly tell us that we are to show mercy on those who have been deceived. We have been the recipients of God's lavish and abundant mercy, and therefore we ought to extend the same mercy towards others. But, but it also tells us that we must be careful how we show mercy. You see, there are right and wrong ways to show mercy. We can err when we must understand what it means to show mercy, and we can err when we misapply that mercy. First, we must consider what it means to show mercy. 
To have mercy is to have compassion or pity. It's to show forbearance, to show kindness, to show benevolence. But when it comes to sin, our culture often misunderstands what it means to show mercy. Our culture thinks that, that it means forgetting or ignoring or overlooking sin. It's that let it slide mentality. Well, I'm just going to let this slide. I'm going to forget about it. It doesn't really matter. But that's not how we as Christians are to have mercy. Yes, we, we absolutely show compassion. We show pity. We are patient. We show kindness. You know, all those things. But our mercy must be based upon the mercy that we have seen in Christ. It must imitate God's mercy. Now, there is a sense in which God is merciful to all. There's no doubt about that. You know, though He has a right to destroy every single one of us right now because of our sin, believer or unbeliever alike, He extends mercy by withholding judgment, by not giving us exactly what we deserve. He does. He shows us mercy by sustaining our lives, by giving good gifts to all, by showering His kindness down upon us. But we have to recognize that there will be an end to it. There will be a day in which God will judge. God's mercy, His forbearance, will come to an end. And those good gifts that He's given, time and time again, only serve to heap burning coals on their heads. You see, there's a difference between God's general mercy and God's specific mercy that He shows in Jesus Christ. And that mercy requires something. That mercy requires repentance and faith. That mercy requires that we acknowledge and admit our sin, that we confess those sins, that we turn from those sins, and that we follow after Christ, that we believe and trust and hope in Him, that we receive and rest in Him, and, and continue to grow in holiness and obedience that there's a transformation that takes place. And it's, when, it's only then that our sins are atoned for. It's, it's then that our sins are forgiven. You know, we're... Therefore, our mercy has to reflect God's mercy in Christ. We... Our mercy, our merciful acts, whatever they might be, are, are to intend for them to to call them to repentance and faith. That's why we do what we do. It's not a blanket, let it slide. It, where mercy must call them to repentance. So, how do we show this mercy in a way that imitates God? Imitates the way that God shows mercy. I think we see it in, in what we've just looked at, in, in the few preceding verses. The way we show mercy happens in the same way that we keep ourselves in the faith. By building upon the most holy faith, by praying in the Spirit, and by waiting on the mercy that is to be revealed in Christ, leading to eternal life. I think those are the three ways. <clears throat> we warn them, we, we build them up in the faith by continuing to proclaim the Word, by warning them of, of what God warns them of of the impending judgment. We rebuke them on the basis of Holy Scripture. We tell them the truth. It is not loving for us to ignore the truth. 
if we were a doctor and we knew that one of our patients had cancer, but we knew that it would break their heart, so we didn't tell them, is that loving to them? No, that's loving ourselves. It's like we want to, we want things to go well for us, so we don't bother to tell them. If we have the truth, we have the knowledge, then we're obligated to tell it. We tell it with compassion, we tell it with love, we tell it with with great pity and patience and hope, but we tell it nonetheless. We speak to the truth if they if we truly love them. And second, we persistently pray for them in the spirit. We intercede with God on their behalf, that he might perhaps grant them repentance, leading to eternal life. And third, we wait for the mercy of Christ. We hope in the gospel. We don't hope in them. We hope in the gospel. Let me ask you this. Do you truly believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? Do you really believe that God who said let light shine out of darkness can really shine in their hearts to give them a light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ? You know, um, I have to admit as I was preparing uh, for this passage, I came under great conviction regarding this. As I studied and I meditated and and I I just prepared to, to... stand up here and tell you guys what this passage means, I I realized I don't live this out. I, I don't hope in the way that I should. I mean, I look at this situation. These false teachers, they were in the church. They heard the truth. And now what are they doing? They're caught up in their sin and they're leading other people away from the church. I mean, it got me riled. It gets me angry. I'm just like, you know what? They're goners. Forget about them. It doesn't matter. I mean, they're lost. And I realized, no, that, that's not what we do here. There's great hope in the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And I have no right to say, that one's gone, and that one might be okay. I must be careful in how I apply that hope. But the hope remains, because the hope is in Christ. And if He can bring me from death to life, if He can bring me from being His enemy to being His friend, to being Christ's brother and fellow heir with Him, then He can do it to anybody. To the most lost, to the to the greatest brother, to the biggest product. There is no one that can escape the power of God for salvation if He should give them His grace. And so this is the hope that we are to have in Christ. Again, not hope in them, but hope in Christ. And this is how we show mercy. So not only do we err in our misunderstanding of what it means to show mercy, but second, we also err in how we misapply mercy. Now this is not a one-size-fits-all. The context has got to rule the way in which we can show mercy. We we have to be wise in how we approach others. And and Jude says that there are three different, he has three different categories in mind here. He said, it's got to look different. He said, first, have mercy on those who doubt. There are some who have been confused. Some who have resulted, this false teaching has caused them to question. But they have not bought in. They're simply confused. To these we show great mercy. 
We come right alongside them. We lead them back to the truth. We reaffirm the truths of Scripture. We, we show compassion and patience in working with them. We are right next to them, side by side, as they struggle through this doubt. Second, Jude says that we are to save others by snatching them out of the fire. Now these folks have bought into the false teaching. These folks have, have followed in ungodly passions. They have been deceived. And Jude says that we must deal with them directly and urgently by praying that God's word would reprove them and lead them to, to correct the ways before they are destroyed. We are to snatch them out of the fire. It's immediate. It's direct. It's, it's urgent. And it says that they're in the fire. Not that they have already been condemned, but that's the direction that they're heading. They're he heading towards the path of judgment and condemnation. The third, to others we show mercy with fear. Now this is a fear of being contaminated. That he said we are to hate even the garments stained by the flesh. These people are those who are devoted to the false teaching. They have totally bought in. They may even be false teachers themselves. We don't know. But they seem like goners. They seem like lost causes. And Jude tells us that we're not to associate with them. As lamentable and as sorrowful as this is, we've got to be aware that we can be led astray by them. We're not like God. We, God cannot sin. We can. God cannot be deceived. We can. God cannot be led astray. We can. Therefore, we have to be careful. We have to live in fear. And so, as grievous as it is, as much as we try not, there are times where we have to remove the unrepentant from fellowship. If they've been in our church and they continue to practice ungodliness and lead others astray in that, then we have that obligation in love, in hope, in mercy, we have that obligation to remove them. We do it in hope because we result, we pray that the result is that they might long to return to and be restored to the church. I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5, of the man caught up in unrepentant sexual immorality, that when you are assembled as a church in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul's hope in saying, removing this man from fellowship, is that he might desire to be saved, that he might come, return in repentance and faith. And so it is our hope that any type of removal would result in, in this... Uh, this salvation. And second, we remove someone to protect the purity of the church so that others might not be persuaded by the same false teaching. And I think Jude has more of that in mind right here when he talks about it. Yeah, and so for all of these, our, our mercy comes through scriptural warning, through biblical discipline, through continual prayer, and through unwavering hope in the power of the gospel. But we lament that at times this has to be done at a distance. For them, according to God, it is the most loving thing that we can do. So, this is what Jude says to us. Beware of false teaching. 
care about biblical truth. It is the means by which we keep in God's love. But make sure, make sure that this truth is making you merciful. Now, I know this is kind of a heavy sermon. You know, as I've been watching, there's been a little bit of sinking out there. And uh, I don't apologize for that. I don't apologize because this is God's Word. I'm not standing here making this up. I would honestly prefer not to. I, I always find it very convicting when I start studying passages and I stand up here and have to preach. But this is God's Word to us. I... I do not apologize because, though I may not know some of you, I care about you. I consider myself your brother in Christ. And I want you to know God's Word. I want you to delight in truth. I want you to have the same hope in the Gospel that I have. And I make no apologies, friends, because ultimately I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to be duped by taking false assurance in a prayer you made, in a confession you made, in you received baptism. I don't want you to be deceived into thinking you're safe just because you did something. But rather that your hope and your, your rest and, and, and your receiving of Christ might continue to grow and be strengthened. That you might keep yourself in the love of God. You know, each of us will stand before a holy God and give an account for what we have done. And friends, friends, God is more holy than you dare imagine. And we are far more wretched than we dare admit. So let us be careful We are not good enough. We are sinners. And we stand before a holy God. But praise God. Praise God that in His mercy He offers Christ to us. That He sent Christ to take our sin. To take the punishment that we deserve. That God's wrath would fall upon Him. And that as He lived His perfect life, His perfect righteousness might be given to us. It might be given to us. As a result of that, we now have the ability to walk in the newness of life. We have been transformed. We are a new creation, able to pursue holiness, to grow in obedience, to love Christ more, to seek Him more, to find our satisfaction in Him more. That's the result of true faith in Christ. That is the result of the gospel. And it is my hope for every one of you that you might receive it. But let me ask you, let's take a minute and think honestly. Is it yours? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I pray that Do we not dare treat your gospel as a get-out-of-hell-free card? That, that it can somehow give us the right to live as we please. But that your gospel gives us the promise of life 
restored, life transformed, life purified, and life perfected. God, you give us the promise that we might be able to walk in the newness of life. And that as a result of this truth, embracing this truth, we receive your love. That it can be ours, but let us labor diligently to keep in it so that we might have hope and we might be givers of hope. God, I pray that if there are those in this room tonight that, that or this morning that have, have not been reconciled to you, that they might think serious about this that you do have a standard that you have called each one of us to. But in your grace, you offer something far better, something that has taken that standard upon himself and given himself so that we might be with you. God, I pray that we desire it. But we thank you for the sacrifice in Christ. And we pray, come Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.